Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. Michael, thank you for joining us on the Plus Four podcast today. We're really excited to talk to you about your new book, relatively new, The Great English Golf Boom. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to talking you through some of the main features of the book and why I came about deciding how to write it. Excellent. Before we get into the book, could we talk a little bit about your biographical background? Could you give us a little snapshot? Uh, sure. Um, well, uh, on, on the golf front, I've been playing golf since I was a child. Um, I think the earliest photograph in the family album is me playing mini golf with my grandparents when I was about five. Mm-hmm. And I was, um, you know, just born in Glasgow, grew up playing all sorts of games. But of course, golf was one of those. And uh, gradually over time, as the other sports fell away, golf became the only game. Mm-hmm. So um, I moved down to uh, England um, to study at Cambridge in the late 1970s. I did a PhD in energy economics and then spent my career mm-hmm. working in the um, energy industry. Wow. You um, must have seen quite a lot of change in Glasgow over your lifetime. Yes. Um, yeah, phenomenally. It was a very poor, uh, rundown city um, after the Second World War, and I was born in, in the 50s, so it was, mm-hmm. it was quite a heavily polluted, um, quite a grim grim place at the time. But uh, uh, in the over time, it's, it's brushed itself up, and it looks a, it's a great city to visit these days. Um, when I finished my PhD, I spent two years in Pittsburgh. So, oh um, yeah, <laughs> the, the, the parallels were quite quite striking there, as the steel industry was in decline in Pittsburgh sure. at the same time as shipbuilding was in decline in Glasgow. I grew up uh, three hours from Pittsburgh, so I know that history well, and that's a funny yeah. comparison, very apt. I was in Glasgow in October, and the uh, the food scene was unbelievably great. Mm. I mean, the, it seems like such a desirable place to live. And if you were, if I were retired, I would consider that region, Air Coast, just because the golf is fantastic. It is. It's that blend of uh, a cultural city life. And then you've got, you're not far from the highlands, right. of course. And you've got all that wonderful golf on the Ayrshire coast. Um, yes. So it's a great blend. Yeah. Yeah. I w- if I could be a member anywhere, literally right now, I think it would be Prestwick, but... Anyway, there's such great golf there, and that's thank you for sharing that background. Not at all. How would you? Where would you put golf if you were listing one word descriptors of you in your in in your life? Where does golf fall in terms of one word descriptors of you and who you are? Well, one word. Um, well, I play golf, reasonable standard. I'm still six handicap. Uh, in my 60s. Um, but I spend more time now writing and researching about I golf see. than right. I do playing. I might play a couple of times a week and uh, still try and get it round. But but mostly my interest is in digging more deeply into the, the history of the game and trying to understand that better. P- pretty much driven by my just curiosity. Yeah. Just address questions that have not been addressed before or to find out more about a certain aspect of the game and and that's what motivates me that's what, and, that gets me up in the morning yeah i i appreciate that are you in the cambridge area still yes i live in central cambridge okay good now have you ever tried hickory golf i have yes uh-huh. i, I uh, sit in my uh, golf library just upstairs I'm a left-hander, so mm. it took me a little while to get a set together, but I've got a beautiful set of, of, of hickory clubs, um, which I use, I would say, maybe three or four times a year. Yeah, good. The last time I used them, I played around Hoylake. How, how, how frequently do you experience seeing it out in your neck of the woods? Does it, does it happen there much? People out there with well, antique clubs? I'm a member of the 
British Golf Collector Society. Um, uh-huh. I'm on the committee there, but mostly my involvement is to do with the literati side, the golf mm-hmm. historian side. Mm-hmm. But they, of course, they have a fabulous fixture list, and uh, I I play a few games usually with the society. Yeah, and also their presidents day or their captains day. Yeah, excellent. Some great members in, in that group. I was recently looking back at one of my other episodes. It was with Alistair Johnston. And I realized that I mentioned you in my show notes for that episode because it was your tweet that brought to my attention Alistair's book, The Chronicles of Golf. I have to admit, I left Twitter the day that Elon Musk bought the company. So I'm not on Twitter anymore. But I found your tweets invaluable in bringing things to my attention. Are you still on Twitter? And what do you love about it? I am. I, I, I basically I, I use it as a, a vehicle just to raise the information about the history of golf, either what other people are writing on it or doing mm-hmm. on it or what I'm personally involved in it. So I, I use it mostly as a communication tool about um, golf history. There are other ways in which I, I could do that as well, but I'm quite happy just to sort of do it as a relatively low level from time to time posting uh, various things that are going on yeah I, that's the one aspect i miss about using it but you know all the negativity i don't miss yeah um, now i i think you spoke recently at the rna world golf museum about your research yes yes they have a, a series of lectures yeah in the spring and in the in the fall and uh, i was part of the spring series so mm-hmm. um, I, again I, I gave a talk essentially on the the key themes emerging from my book and did I see that you joined this group, the Golf Geeks, for a brief uh, interchange? Well, well, that's there's a, a small group within a group, if you if you know what I mean. I in do. Golf history world, and there was quite a few of the quite a few of them have settled in St Andrews. So yes. when you're in St Andrews, there's always an opportunity to talk golf history with uh, with a group of the people there. David Hamilton particularly so um, Peter Lewis uh, who's written wonderful books over over the years as has yes. David so um, it's always great to catch up with them that I see them very much as my gurus they they've taught me a lot over time absolutely are you a golf collector and if so what do you collect yes I, I became a, a golf collector somewhat by accident I collect books mm-hmm. and so the area that I've specialized in is in centenary books of English golf clubs. Ah, uh-huh. And I had to do that because of COVID. Yes. Um, I live in Cambridge. I have access to this wonderful uh, university library, which is a holding library, which means that it retains everything that's been published mm. in United Kim- Kingdom since the mid 19th century. So mm-hmm. it's a wonderful place to be able to do research but with covid and the libraries were all shut down uh, it meant i had to look for my research material elsewhere so i had a few books on club histories and i thought they'd be a very good source from the grassroots level to look at how different clubs developed over time Mm -hmm. so i started collecting on ebay and um, amazon and uh, a books etc i hoovered up as many as I could. And then I started writing to the clubs themselves that who the books that I didn't have. And very kindly, many of them sent me copies of their centenary books. So I've ended up with this collection over the last few years of 600 mm. books of individual golf clubs in England specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was the foundation for a lot of my, my research uh, to put the book together. I've been a big fan of a club maker from the era called uh, Peter Paxton, who was at Eastbourne. And Mm -hmm. uh, I bought the centenary publication for that course and was so disappointed that I don't think he was even mentioned in the book. And he was one of the original club professionals there. There is a variability in the quality of the books that are produced. Yeah. On clubs, clubs and club histories. They tend to, a lot of them are done by members who have, rolled up their sleeves and tr- done their best without a great deal of background and knowledge on, yes, on golf. Sure. Yeah. Others, others much more knowledgeable and have done the research thoroughly and looked into the minute books that may, the clubs may still retain and built mm-hmm. up the story from, from that level. 
but it is it is a bit of a a movable feast in terms yeah. of the quality. <laughs> do you have any conjecture what the RNA may do with uh, Alistair's donation and what was it sixty thousand <clears throat> books that he donated? I I don't specifically know the latest on that. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, just curious. Yeah, I, I actually I've never met Alistair, but he mm -hmm. buys he of course picks up coffees in my book. But bizarrely, he he grew up only about ten miles away from mm, where I. That's did. right. So yeah, we're both Glaswegians, so uh, yeah. maybe one we'll meet. <laughs> He's been on the podcast, and if you haven't listened to the episode, it is so much fun. He's a really yeah. funny man, and shared some really funny stories about his life with Arnold Palmer. Yes, and of course he has the most massive book collection. So yes, I recommend I recommend the episode. It's it's really fun. Yeah, we're all excited to hear where that will how that will end up being available in St Andrews. Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? I've been curious if the, if they will be uh, simply a a place where you can come and inspect a book, but you can't check out a book. Let's hopefully it will be a, a useful resource for people who are interested in the history. Oh, I'm of sure. Books. I'm sure. Is there a topic or subject that hasn't yet been explored that excites you today that you hope to dig into sometime? There's been a number of spin-offs already from the book that I've written. Mm -hmm. So you you go so far in certain areas and then you realize, oh, you could end up going down a rabbit hole for a long time on a, in a particular topic. For example, one of the key figures in my book is a golf professional and course designer called Tom Dunn. Mm-hmm. He was involved in many of the courses laid out in England in the 1890s. And he claimed on his deathbed, he died of tuberculosis, quite young, he was only around 50, that he'd laid out 137 mm -hmm. golf courses. Mm -hmm. So he, it wasn't 100, or, and it wasn't <laughs> roughly 150. It was very precisely 137. Right. So nobody had ever asked the question, well, is that true? And if it is, where are these 137 golf courses? So I set myself a little challenge over the last year or two to try and see if I can identify where they all were. And so I've just completed a three-part article in the British Golf Collector Society's magazine, Through the Green. Yes. Uh, and that takes you through the whole story. And I've eventually found all 137. Wow, that's amazing. Congrats. So that was an example of, you know, the general area that I was interested in, but there was some specifics that weren't relevant to the book, but then I've gone off and, and looked at those subsequently. Hmm. Just briefly, because I know you're so focused in England, uh, do you know much about the original Women's Golf Museum, which was in London in 1938 and affiliated with the LGU? I read about it in Mabel Stringer's book, if you know that book, uh, Golfing Reminiscences, which Indeed. is such a great book, and I'm trying to get my own copy of it. I, I got it through an interlibrary loan. Uh, that museum closed after the wars, and uh, the collection was divided. So half the collection is now with Angela Howe and the RNA World Golf Museum. Yes. But the other half of that collection ended up at the St. Andrews Special Collections at St. Andrews University. Well, the, the LGU originally was formed in 1893 in, yes. in London. And uh, Isette Pearson was the key figure. And she yes. was a golfer at Wimbledon, ladies. Right. And they set up their original office in London, uh, principally because that was where she lived. Yes. What a seminal figure she was. Indeed. Uh, so what what motivated you to set out to write the, the great English golf boom? Well, I, I suppose it's like anything else. Nobody had written this book before was, was maybe the starting point. The curiosity I had was I'd written three other books which were about clubs in England. And mm -hmm. each, in each of those books, in the early chapter, I would set out the context, as as most people do, of what was going on while this particular club was formed mm -hmm. and what I could see was there was an enormous um, number of clubs being formed at the same time in the 1890s but there was nothing written down nobody had put together the research to figure out exactly how many clubs had been formed and how many had been formed in with in particular years and how golf spread throughout the country and I was just curious to be able to figure that out and then I realized using the um for example the golf golfing annuals 
and Nisbet's and the various books that produced directories of golf clubs back in the in that period. Mm -hmm. All you had to do was go through all of those books and try and compile lists of those clubs and the details about those clubs. The only thing was it was going to take quite some time to do that. <laughs> in fact, I think it took me close to a year just to do the basic research of compiling all the information on the golf clubs. Mm -hmm. But once I had that all set up in a database, then you could start analyzing it and try and understand what was taking place at that time. Mm -hmm. And that was the foundation, the, the data side of it was the foundation of putting the book together. Right. Now, I, I know about some of your other books. One of them, The Worst Golf Course Ever, Coldham Common, The History of Cambridge Golf Club, 1869 to 1919. Can you just tell us a little bit about that book? Uh, sure. So I, I am in Cambridge, mm -hmm. and I went to Cambridge University, and it's had a golf club for many, you know, 150 years. Mm -hmm. um, but nobody had ever written a history on, 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 on the university golf club. But I thought that was kind of interesting that we didn't have a clear picture of this very old golf club. In fact, they didn't even realize how old they were. The, mm. the website at the time was saying that they were formed in 1875. But once I started digging around and got access to the minute books that the club still had and mm. reading, checking the newspapers from the period, there was evidence that a club had been formed in 1869. Mm -hmm. So six years earlier, and um, we now have a trophy that was presented by a certain Lord Dunedin in the 1920s, and uh, he turned out to be one of the these early members. And when he presented the trophy, it was a fascinating trophy. It's got 17 half-crown coins embedded into the silver cup, and this was to represent the 17 original members oh, of mm -hmm. the Golf Club. Mm -hmm. So that, that was the start of the, of the golf club. And in the mid-1870s, they started playing on this muddy old common, which Bernard Darwin, who was in the 1890s, he was a, he was a member of the University Golf Club, described it as the worst course I have ever seen, and many <laughs> others would consider give it a light, a light distinction. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, the title, The Worst Golf Course Ever, came from Bernard Darwin. Right. Uh, and so it was, it was just intriguing how this small university golf club blossomed during the, on this muddy old common where they could only play golf in the, the winter months because the cattle came back on in the summertime. Mm -hmm. There was a rifle range down the center of it, which was used for practicing. And there was times that we were playing golf when the rifle range was in active use. And a railway line then was eventually, a uh, railroad line was... Um, was put right through the middle of it as well. So it was mm -hmm. it was pretty pretty terrible place to play golf. But the club blossomed, and in fact, by the early eighteen nineties, they had five hundred members mm. playing mm. golf there. That was the rationale behind that 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 book. Yeah, yeah I'll to... just I'll say there's a really great BBC News interview with you about this. It includes depictions of that trophy, which I'll put a link to on my website, but also the other trophy that you were able to find. Yes, there was uh, there was two trophies. I, I asked the um, president of the University Golf Club if I could see the trophies they had, and, it, mm -hmm. and that there were some beautiful silver trophies, but two of them were missing. One of them, the Dunedin Cup, which I just referred to, that that wasn't there, and the Linskill Cup was the other one, which was just uh, a pewter tankard, nothing terribly special, but it was um, first played for in eighteen seventy seven. Both of them were missing. So I used my research skills and going through the minute books. And I have to say also a huge amount of luck to track down these these two trophies. And um, the Linskill Cup, it turns out, had been forgotten about at um, Hollandwell, which is the, where the Knotts Golf Club plays in, in the Midlands here in England. Mm -hmm. It had been played for in a match between the university and the, the club. And at some point, the match had gone into abeyance and the mm -hmm. trophy had been forgot about. So the oldest trophy they had, it, it just languished in the basement until I asked the question, do you have it by any chance? And right. it was discovered. The Dunedin Cup, um, very value, this very valuable silver cup with the 17 half crowns, had not been seen by anybody for over 50 years, 50, 60 years. And that looked like that had completely gone. I checked 
Um, one last minute while I, before I was finishing writing my book, I went into the local jeweler store where the Linsco Cup had been made, and mm-hmm. I was chatting with the head jeweler there, and he mentioned that they had an old trophy that was down in the safe and had been there for a long time. And I inquired about that, and he said he'd bring it up and show me, and it turned out it was the Dunedin Cup with its wow. seven and a half crowns that had wow. been in the safe, forgotten about for about 60 years. So yeah. there was a couple of interesting stories uh, right at the end of that book. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful trophy. Thanks for sharing that. And now one of your other books, The Origins of the Sacred Nine, Royal Worlington and New Market Golf Club. That was the mm-hmm. the history of uh, the early history of Royal Worlington and New, New Market Golf Club. Okay. Which where Dar- what Darwin described as the Sacred Nine when he wrote an article in Country Life magazine mm-hmm. in the late nine- 1920s. He said it, it was such a wonderful place to play golf, and he had been playing there since he was a student. Oh. Um, so there was some... We, we'd had a centenary book written in 1993 to s- celebrate the 100 years, and uh, in... Um, 2018 was the 125th anniversary. So yes. the club asked if I would update the um, the the centenary book. So it turned out I uh, I dug a bit more deeply, and instead of it just being a simple update, it became a, a book in its own self. So mm-hmm. that was explaining how the club had been formed in the early days and how the golf course had taken shape, and then has remained pretty much the same ever since. It's mm-hmm. still nine holes. It's still, again, Tom Dunn was there uh, briefly to lay it out. And the features on that golf course are, are as typical of any golf course that you could put Tom Dunn's name to. Right. It's still playable in that format today. Now, I know the great English golf boom was self-published. Was that the case with some of your other publications? Yes, uh, I've self-published all, all, all four of my books, Um with assistance from a, a small uh, publishing services company here in Cambridge, who uh, the, the process is relatively straightforward. If anybody is thinking of writing a book, it's it's not as hard as it used to be to publish because um, all you have to do is produce a Word document initially and, of course, all the images that you might want to use. And I pass that on to people who've, who've got design skills and do the layout presentation you need to do all the checking and editing and so forth and the cover and the design style. And then you end up with a, a PDF document which goes to a printer. And a month later, you'll get a bundle of books um, mm-hmm. from the printer. So now this, uh, the Great English Golf Boom is a substantial publication. Uh, was that possibly printed in Asia or where where was that printed? Do you know? No, it was printed uh, an hour and a half drive wow. from Cambridge in a uh, town called Norwich. Uh-huh. Wonderful. I, I imagine one of the challenges I would guess in self-publishing is simply storing and distributing all of the books. I know when I ordered my copy, it was directly through you and you posted it from the UK. Is that is that a dilemma in any way? Well, I, it is in some ways. I mean, if you went down the route of just using a major publisher to publish your books, then all of that supply chain aspect is is by them but um these are small numbers of relatively small numbers i publish in you know typically 500 in the case of the great english golf boom i i've printed a thousand books because i thought i thought it had a potentially a wider readership but i've got to be the postman yeah i've got to uh, contact the customers i've got to get their uh, mailing address i go to the post office and i post it off but uh, this is the one great advantage of this is I know who all my readers mm-hmm. are. Right. If I was with a major publisher because of the data access limitations, I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know who had bought a copy of my book. Sure. So I find that quite uh, charming to be able to make contact people directly. And also I get lots of good feedback as well. Right. Positive. You know, if somebody says, I would have preferred you provided you know a full list of all the clubs and all the data so with them as well that would be another 150 pages to add to the book so I, I, I couldn't do that but um but it's I've also has a very pleasant and uh, uh, favorable comments back yeah 
Now, mine's dated July 27th. Was that fairly early or when did when did you first start shipping books? I launched the book at St. Andrews in the um, first few days of the week of the open, the 150th oh. open. Uh-huh. We had a, an event at the uh, World Golf Museum called Meet the Author. Mm-hmm. And uh, a number of authors who had produced books were invited to give uh, brief talks about their books. Mm. Um, and I was one of the authors. So I used that as my launch pad. And I, I used that as a, my deadline to make sure I finished all the publication process so that I started producing books around about the third week in July, I guess it would be. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's exciting. Other- yeah. Could you, uh, just for the listener's sake, just give us the ele- elevator speech for the book, and then we'll get into some specifics about your research. Sure. Well, the, the, the number of the book was to try and answer uh, four basic questions about this great boom in golf in England in the late 19th century through to the First World War. The first question is, quite simply, what happened? What mm-hmm. was the, the nature of this book? How many clubs are formed? Secondly, where did it happen? Uh, was was the golf um, around the coast? Was it inland? Uh, how, to what extent was it widely distributed? Were there parts of the country that where golf wasn't played and others where it was played intensively? So what was the geographic aspect of it? The third question is, who were the golfers? English people didn't particularly have a background in golf. And the curiosity I had was, well, how did they get to know about the game and how did it take off in such numbers and then become such a popular sport? And the fourth and the ultimate question is, was why did it happen? Mm-hmm. Why did it happen at that particular point in time, especially as we knew that the boom in golf in Scotland had happened several decades before golf took off in England? So those are the four fundamental questions that I was trying to address in the book. Mm-hmm. Now, probably unsurprising to the listeners, I think most people who first learn about your book make the assumption that I made, which is that, of course, it just mirrors the development of the railway system. But you debunk that with your research in terms of England. Isn't that the case? Yes. And and one of the, probably one of the key messages that came out of it, I mean, whenever I, during the period where I was writing my book and people were asking me, well, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm working on this great boom in golf in England. And I would say more than 90% of them, the first thing they would say to me was, ah, yes, the railways. Right. And I was, well, not really. Um, The railways were certainly very important in getting golf going in in Scotland. Uh, The key year there was 1848. Two things happened. The Gutta Persia golf ball was was invented and Mm -hmm. came into play and very quickly replaced the feathery golf ball. It was much cheaper, and therefore that increased the... um, you know, the, the, the number of people who could afford to play golf in Scotland. And mm-hmm. secondly, right about that time, the railway network expanded in Scotland, enabling people who lived in the cities and towns to go to the coast. And then they were seeing golf in Scotland for the first time. Golf, the, the railways also started, were linked up between England and Scotland around about that time. And the English railway network expanded much more rapidly and much more extensively than it did in Scotland. But yet, no golf clubs appeared. So this was the the intriguing thing, was that when in Scotland in the early 1850s, there was about 30 or 40 golf clubs all scattered around the coast. In England, there were, at the same time, with a much bigger railway network, there were two. Right. That was Royal, amazing. Royal Blackheath in London, and a small, a very modest club in Manchester called, subsequently known as Old Manchester. Mm-hmm. And both of these clubs had been be- formed before the railways even existed. So into the 1850s and the 18, early 1860s, no golf clubs were formed in England as a consequence of this major expansion in the railway network. Right. So you had to then roll on further in time. And even when you got to... The, the year I always look at, which is an, a nice year to, with a round number, is 1889. By 1889, there was 100 golf clubs in England. So there was certainly things were starting to move. But when you looked at the year in which the railway station opened relative to the club nearest to the railway station, mm-hmm. the average time gap was something like 25 years. So the yeah, railways were there yeah. 
two and a half decades or so before the golf clubs came. So it wasn't you opened a railway station and suddenly some guys got together and decided, let's build a golf course because right. then we can get there easily. Right. You mentioned uh, in, in 1853, every town in England with a population of 8,000 or more had a railway station. But as you said, so few golf courses. Is it still the case today? You you know, we'll get into the fact that a lot of these golf courses have survived despite the two wars. Is it still the case that a majority of courses are in small towns throughout the country? This was certainly one of the fascinating uh, things that came out of my research was that of all the clubs that were formed in this great boom period, uh, which, you know, I, I, as I briefly mentioned, a hundred, there was a hundred in England by um, 1889. Right. Then 1,200 golf clubs were formed between 1890 and 1914. So in a 25 year period, 1,200 golf, almost one a week for right. a quarter of a century, yeah. which is, and half of those clubs were in towns with populations of less than 10,000. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the big cities where golf was, there was golf being played in, in cities, but if it was about the scatter of golf around the country and it penetrated down to even the smallest communities that existed in, in England at that time. Nowadays, the, you know, there was clearly a lot of clubs clo closed or uh, were abandoned during the first and then the second world war and then there's been periods of austerity mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so golf is probably coalesced around larger population areas nowadays than it was at that time mm -hmm. one of the things that seems so different than the development in scotland as you alluded to a minute ago is the the way that golf was not centralized in england right and i think despite the first two that you mentioned as let's say before there were a hundred courses, they were all over the country, right? Royal North Devon and Royal St. George's. I mean, they were just all over. They weren't really centralized, were they? No, they, every, um, if I can get my facts right here, uh, every county in England had a golf club by 1892. Mm, right. So um, that shows that the spread was every, pretty much everywhere. There mm -hmm. didn't seem, there wasn't any obvious gaps in the geographically where golf could be played, even in some quite challenging conditions, like on Moorland, um, which, uh, you know, tends to be wet and difficult to uh, maintain. Mm -hmm. There was still golf courses being developed in, in these, in small communities and in, in, in Moorland areas. Um, and but, may I interrupt but, for a minute? Is Yorkshire, yes, Yorkshire is a representation of that Moorland maybe? It became so. Yes. I mean, uh -huh. um, Yorkshire came to the game a, a little bit more slowly than some in some areas. By in eighteen eighty nine, my reference point of a hundred clubs, there was only two in Yorkshire at that mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. But over the next uh, twenty five years, over a hundred clubs were formed in Yorkshire and became yeah. the county the most golf clubs. So, uh, you know, the, it, uh, many of these were on parkland rather than than moorland. They would be near towns or small towns, and wherever there was mm -hmm. some common land or some private land that was amenable to laying out nine holes, then, you know, that, that happened pretty quickly and uh, across throughout the country. I mean, the, the, the big difference between Scotland and England is that Scotland in Scotland, golf developed at the coast. And yes, right. if you had links land, that was the ideal place to play golf. And you mentioned Robert, you know, you mentioned uh, Royal North Devon, you could mention Hoylake, uh, Royal Liverpool, Royal mm -hmm. St. George's. These are the clubs that you think of today as from that era. But the Lynx-land-based golf clubs in England were in the in the minority. Yeah. Only only four percent of the clubs formed in that period were on Lynx land. Mm -hmm. Eighty-five percent were formed inland, and this was the again the great difference between Scotland and England. And in some ways. The model of what was happening in England was the model of how golf spread subsequently around the world. Most golf, as we know to this day, it tends to be more inland in terms mm. of the number of clubs that exist rather than at the coast. You always treasure any wonderful land you get at the coast. But the the great boom in golf in England was a, an inland move. So golf was played close to where people lived 
they didn't need to catch the train because most of the members live closer to their golf club than they do, did to the railway station. Right, right. Um, mm -hmm. And they played typically on parkland, pasture land, rather than links land. And mm -hmm. more often than not, the number of holes they had in their course when they laid it out initially was nine holes rather mm -hmm. than 18. Yes. Right, right, right. Uh, as you built this massive database, you must have been cross-referencing your research with population size. Yes, yes. I Fortunately, at the university, there was a department that specialized in building up census data. You know, mm -hmm, every mm -hmm. 10 years, we have a census going back to uh, 1860s. 1861 and um, they had taken all the data from all the census and uh, broken it down by town size so that was mm -hmm. how I was able to correlate where my golf clubs were with the size of the towns in right. those areas. Was there anything else in that massive database that we might not uh, predict but might have become surprisingly useful? Well, there's some funny things in there. Like um, I managed to track down whether golf you could play golf at the, these clubs on a Sunday or not. Because uh, uh, yes. back in the day, um, people were not meant to enjoy um, frivolous activities such as golf on a Sunday. They were meant mm -hmm. to go to church or to pray or to, to do no work and have a rest. Um, but gradually over time, you could see that some golf clubs were keen to make it make their members or potential members aware that you could play golf there on a Sunday. And even some said either with or without a cat, a caddy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I gathered lots of sort of rather esoteric information as well as the, how many holes they had when they were formed. Also how many members they had and how much it cost to join and how much they paid in their annual subscription. So mm -hmm. trying to build up a picture economically of these clubs was another aspect of the of the work I was doing because golf has always been considered to be a, a rather elitist game in England, mm -hmm. which is only was only played by the wealthier members of society, the upper middle classes. But what I discovered, again, coming back to this interesting uh, insight that many clubs were in small towns was that these clubs were much more affordable to play golf mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than in the larger cities where the uh, wealthier people lived. So right. it's actually a cross section of middle-class people and gradually over time, working class people at the more skilled end who were, who could afford more of the time than the money perhaps yeah. to be able to take up golf. I appreciated you go to some detail in the book also about calling out ladies clubs, which exist in Scotland and England and other places. But I appreciated that aspect of your your diligence as well. I did some back of the envelope math many years ago, looking at uh, similar basic information. I didn't go to extensive lengths, but looking at the number of members, people in and the number of clubs in Scotland, at, in my case, and extrapolated from that if each member had a set of seven clubs, how many clubs were being produced? Actual golf clubs, not societies. And, yes. uh, and, and it's incredible how quickly that math gets massive. You know, they were producing millions of Hickory golf clubs before <clears throat> the turn of the century on an annual basis, just to serve even the limited number of golf courses that existed before 1900, which is not inconsiderable. Even in the U S we had golf courses, even here where I live on the West coast, we had golf out here in the 1890s as well. But anyway, you can do that extrapolation if you can find the number of members, which is often cited in these directories that you mentioned. Yes. A question I have, though, is why do you think they were taking down all of this detail in all of those directories? I've seen the directories. They often list the members' names, uh, the subscription price or the membership price. Why, why were they keeping all of that information? Thank God they did, but... Why were they doing that? Do you know? Well, I guess the analogy to some extent is is the website today of, mm. of every golf every golf club has a website, yeah. and they want to inform their existing members of um, what's what's going on. But more importantly, they want to attract visitors and new members, so they have to provide some information to do mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. I, th I think this was, you know, 
to the extent that there was social mobility in those days and people were moving around. If they were already a golfer, then they might they want to find out what golf clubs existed in the area they might be moving to mm -hmm. and how much mm -hmm. it would cost to play. Yeah. And sometimes, for example, there was a spectrum from uh, a relatively modest amount to a much uh, more expensive amount. So they can could cut their cloth, cloth accordingly to right. decide which club they could join. Sure. Similarly, the visitors, I mean, the visitor rates were also printed in these um, in these publications. So you knew how much if you wanted to go and have a game on a Sunday, or if you were on holiday and you were at the coast, you could buy a weekly ticket or a monthly ticket um, to play golf. Um, and so this was this was an information service. But yeah. of course, if you're a historian looking back on it, then it's very valuable information then to Absolutely. be able to out. An aspect of the question was, who was playing golf? Well, clearly, those who could afford to play golf were playing golf. Right. Yeah, wonderful. I, I think I heard an interview you did with the Cookie Jar uh, podcast in which you described the fact that you literally lined up some of these uh, paper products in your home when you were building the chronology of the development of your research. Is that is that the case? Uh, yeah, that was that was my uh, the collection of golf club histories. Mm -hmm. So um, they're no longer on my floor in my office because I've now created in my a library where uh -huh. they are but but originally they were piled by year of club foundation on my floor right and you could see the change in the pile the size of the pile told you how many clubs were formed in that year oh right so you, across my floor you had a you had a, a histogram showing uh this um Change, the the golf boom the English golf boom was on my uh, was it on was my literal floor. I love that so it's like a bar graph but on your floor <laughs> indeed yeah <laughs> that's pretty neat I've got some bookcases now so they're not quite as <laughs> that's good railroads came about in the 1840s in Scotland you and I have talked about that briefly already at that time there were just a handful of courses or golf membership clubs for context can you remind us about the industrial revolution in Britain it was much earlier there than it was in the U.S. I'm sure. I yes. Know. Yes. When 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 would you say the industrial revolution occurred in Britain? Well, uh, it was probably. I mean, it's accepted as probably the first country in the world where where it where it did happen, and it was a combination of factors. In the uh, you got to go back to the 18th century rather than mm. golf in, in the 19th century, and it was a combination of access to um, coal uh, as a fuel steel um iron iron ore so the steel making process and then innovation in the form of uh, spinning uh looms and mechanization mm -hmm. process and all of this sort of coalesced together beginning in the um the 18th century then but of course became a major feature of the change in life that took place as a consequence of that in the 19th century so you moved away from a predominantly rural population to an urban population. I think the statistics are something like at the beginning of the 19th century, 20% of people lived in cities. And by the end of the 19th century, 80% of people in mm. Great Britain lived in cities. So there was this huge transformation went on during that period as a consequence of all of the developments associated with the Industrial Revolution. I know this is a gross oversimplification, but is it, is it fair to say Glasgow was the engine room for the nation? Uh, well, it was the shipbuilding capital, uh -huh. certainly. And uh, there was steel mills in um, North Lanarkshire, which which was went towards both producing the railways, the railway engines, the ships. So Glasgow was an important feature, but so was Liverpool, Mm -hmm. uh, in shipping and trading and Manchester was, was uh, a big mill mill a city with mill mill towns mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and of course London was the the financial sector so all of these cities were growing very rapidly at that time gotcha how do you think about the Scottish influence on early golf in England wasn't it entirely connected to Scotland from the very beginning and when did we see that begin to get diluted so yes, uh, Scots were very important in the early days because English people had not been exposed to golf. They didn't know very much about it. A few might have traveled north 
before the railways began and started to see the highlands and may have seen some of the golf played in some of the golf towns, but they were in very small numbers. Um, and you had a, essentially a two-way process, a two-way directional flow. When, when the railway systems of Scotland and England were connected up, you had a lot more Scots going south for mm -hmm. work purposes. Mm -hmm. So you had this greater influx of Scots into England spread all throughout the country. Again, I managed to get data on a county by county level of the number of Scots living in, in all mm. these areas. And I found that, interestingly, there was a correlation between the number of clubs in a county and the number of Scots located in a county mm -hmm. at particular points in time. And at the same time, English people started to travel to Scotland to see uh, the middle class people who could afford to take the train. Instead of it being four days on a stagecoach, it was 10 hours on a train from London to Edinburgh. And so that dramatically changed and opened up Scotland as a, a tourist um, venue. So, yes, initially the early golf clubs, Scots were heavily involved in either um, setting up the club or contacting professionals in Scotland to get them to come down and lay out the course and supply clubs, old Old Tom Morris made a, a great living out of selling golf clubs south of the border from his base in St Andrews, and so did many of the Musselburgh pros and those at North Berwick. Mm -hmm. So you had a, a some of these uh, great professionals of the the era in Scotland. They gravitated south, became club professionals around the country, and gradually more and more Englishmen, and it was men predominantly in the early days women came somewhat later and mm -hmm. in important numbers, began to get that golf was an interesting game to play. And over time, as we moved from, let's say, the 1860s through to about the 18, late 1880s, gradually it was English people by that time, by the 18, late 1880s, English people were setting up golf clubs and they weren't so longer dependent on Scots for doing that. You mm -hmm. still have a a cross-section of Scots in all of these clubs, but they weren't the principal drivers by that time. Gotcha. Well, we're, we'll talk about the Open in a, in a few minutes. I want to get into that for a second. But uh, let's go back to Royal Blackheath, the earliest club in England. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I make note, in case listeners don't know, that in 1857, the Grand National Tournament at St. Andrews was won by a representative of Blackheath. Of course, he was a Scotsman, but uh, Blackheath representative won that tournament before the open championship was created right um now blackheath i was on their website last night obviously lay claim to being the earliest club in england undisputed right interestingly they believe king james the sixth who was the son of mary queen of scots and the great great grandson of henry the seventh who had been king of england ended up this is king james the sixth ended up ruling both scotland and england and it may be the reason golf came to Blackheath in the first place. Uh, my main question about all of this is, were you able to visit with any of their historians and get access to any of their archives in your research? Well, I, I know the archivist at Royal Blackheath very well. He's a, mm -hmm. a good friend and uh, we, we meet up several times a year. Um, Richard Williams uh, is the, the key figure there. Um, Blackheath, there's different schools of thought on this, the Blackheath view. <laughs> yes. And then, then then those who've been studying it, I mean, I don't know if you've come across Neil Miller before in your... Um, yes, I um, have his book, yeah. So Neil has written on the earliest golf in England and the evidence seems to point to places other than Black, Blackheath where we've, where we've got evidence. Yes, and yes. That's when King James VI of Scotland became King James I of... England, Scotland, the United right. Kingdom. Yes. The then indeed his court moved south to London. But, and we know that he played golf. And we assume that his followers and his court played golf. But we have no evidence that there was a golf club at that time because clubs did not exist as an entity. Right. We have no specific evidence that they played on Blackheath. All we can assume is that it's it's likely, but but without the evidence, we can't yes. say with certainty. The yes. earliest evidence of golf at Blackheath is 1766, when they played for uh, a competition, and the winner 
placed a silver ball attached to a silver club. And every captain thereafter or every winner of that competition attached a silver ball. So if you go to Royal Blackheath and are, uh, have the opportunity of seeing their wonderful array of memorabilia, you will see those clubs with the balls attached. The earliest one we've got, the earliest one they have is 1766. So mm -hmm. in the broader golf historian world, we tend to think of, well, that's a starting point, but it's still well ahead of any other club in England. It still places it as the oldest club. Yeah. Do you have a sense of how the club is doing? I know they sold some of their precious archives to do some renovations or to buy the land a decade ago or so. Do you know, are they doing well? I think uh, I, I think pretty much all golf clubs in England mm. uh, and, and Great Britain are doing very well at the moment. I don't know if you've experienced the same boom in America, but yeah. since COVID and lockdowns that we had, people have taken to golf partly through the fact that initially they couldn't get access to golf as a visitor because the members were given priority. Mm -hmm. And secondly, there's been lifestyle changes. More people are working from home than used to work. They're doing less commuting, so they have more time to play golf. And there's been this huge influx of new members at most golf clubs around the country. And I'm sure yeah. Blackheath is is no exception. Yeah. Do I remember reading that that Blackheath originally had some kind of a big pit in the middle of it, didn't it? Was it a quarry or something? Yeah, gravel quarries. Uh -huh. Yeah. There was no bunkers as such on 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 the uh, originally the five hole course at Blackheath, it was only five holes. I think it became seven holes and uh, and perhaps nine at some stage before they eventually could no longer play on the heath itself and had to move because they were, um, there was too many other things going on. Mm -hmm. um, pedestrians, uh, other sports being played, general use by the public. And eventually Blackheath moved to another club called Elton in the same area. And the agreement was made to merge the two clubs and rename Elton, Elton um, as Royal Blackheath. Yeah. I see. That um, was in 1923 that happened. Gotcha. Could you talk just a, briefly about golf in England in broad general terms? How do you think of golf there in terms of links, Parkland, Heathland, et cetera? And could you just give listeners a sense of the difference between those styles? Well, uh, the classic links land is as as uh, as as anyone who has come from the U.S. over to to play golf here, um, similar characteristics to whether you're in Scotland or England. The the land was created by a combination of the wind and the sea, and the the sand dunes eventually uh, took hold of uh, the various grasses and and bound it together and of course the scottish game of golf took off essentially starting on linksland and england has i think there's something like 50 clubs in england on linksland mm -hmm. um would you give the... a few just a few examples of some of them as we talk about them oh certainly uh well um i think i mentioned that the main ones where the open championship are played sure. of course include uh, hoy lake royal liverpool um lytham um, Burkdale, the, those three are up on the West Lanks course, the coast, the northwest of England. Mm -hmm. um, on the south coast, you have um, uh, Royal St George's and nearby two other clubs which hosted the Open Championship but no longer do so. That's uh, Royal Sankport, Deal and Princes, uh, which all three of those clubs are literally side by side yeah. on the um, Kent coast in the south southeast of england yeah but the scattering of clubs all the way around cornwall the, has lynx land maybe there are clubs in cornwall yes that are on mm -hmm. lynx land um saint enadoc would be worth mentioning yes, yes. great course perrinporth um there's 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 a number in in even though it's quite a rocky um coast and cliff line coast there are still areas of of lynx land in, yes. in that that southwest corner of england yeah thank you so that's the sort of coastal coast. And of course, there's many coastal clubs that are there who, who play on grassland because just simply the links land wasn't available. Yes. If you go inland, then you're looking at uh, sort of three main, four main types. One is uh, just traditional parkland, which makes up the vast majority in England. Then you have heathland, which is, uh, again, sandy soil inland. Uh, heaths typically form from 
either ancient riverbeds or mm. uh, windblown sand in in various parts of the country. We have downland, which is something you may not be so familiar with. This is where the underlying uh, the underlying rock is chalk, oh. so it's downland, mm -hmm. and that's an alkaline soil, and it tends to the in the southeast. Uh, corner of, of England, you have courses on, on downland, which makes it mm. typically on hilly land, quite windy, very few uh, trees because um, mm. um, you tend it tends to be quite open and challenging. Uh, and all along the um, south coast of England, along the cliffs, you'll find you'll find downland courses as well, a few inland ones. And as I briefly mentioned earlier, there's also um, moorland courses, which are mm -hmm. Maybe the most challenging of all to play on on wet conditions, sometimes uh, closed for many months in the winter because uh, the just golf isn't playable at that time. Yeah. So that's the, the main types of, of di different types that we have. The great heathland courses, um, just uh, briefly mentioned. Uh, there's there's a large gathering of those around to the west of London in. Surrey and Berkshire. You've got Walton Heath, where the Women's Open Championship was was, was held there recently. You have mm -hmm. Sunningdale, of course, Woking, Warpleston, West Hill, the Berkshire. There, there. If you're looking for um, classic Heathland, you don't have far to go from from the London area. You make me want to come tomorrow. Uh, how about sand greens? Were there sand greens in England at various places? No, no, we. That didn't that didn't occur as far as mm -hmm. I'm aware. It was based the 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 initial greens were very fundament very simple, very rudimentary. Um, the only tools that the greenkeepers had were a hand hand mower, which eventually they they got a horse drawn mower, but that mm -hmm. came a bit later, and um, a heavy a heavy roller. So the greens were basically the flattest bit of land they could find to lay out a, a green, and then they rolled it have rolled rolled it with a heavy ro roller and and cut it with a mower, and that that was basically it. The, the the early greens on these most of these golf courses were quite small as a result, mm -hmm. small yeah. and and square and mm -hmm. not not terribly interesting. Could you tell us about the origin of the artwork on the cover of your book? Oh yes, it's a great piece. Yes. Well, it was originally, just get the details here, it was a cartoon and it appeared in Punch magazine in 1885 and it was, um, the name of the cartoon was The Golf Stream mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it showed shows this picture of all these golfers, like an army of golfers marching with their golf clubs on their shoulder <laughs> as yeah. they head off to Scotland to play golf in the summer. So I've, I was fortunate enough to be able to um, find out who 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 currently owned the um, the cartoon and was able to license it to use it on my book. In fact, I even was able to flip it so it looks yeah yeah from the <laughs> they're walking from left to right rather than in the original cartoon where they're going right to left. Yeah, it's a really strong image. I love it. What what has surprised you most about the impact of this publication? I think people are becoming more informed about now what golf in England was like and that it is not the same story as the, how golf developed in Scotland. And that's mm -hmm. been the most encouraging aspect of it from my point of view. I've enjoyed, I enjoyed writing the book, but it's more important to me that people have a better understanding. And, and if I, if that is the end product of what I've done, then that will be, that that's my goal really yeah. is uh, to broad, broaden our understanding amongst golfers and anyone who wishes to get involved in the game because we're so lucky to have a game that is the history of the game is just so interesting and and i and i think if it it draws more people into the game it'd be great if they knew more about it when they go and play a certain golf course then it will they will get greater enjoyment out of playing golf if they have a broader understanding of how it came about yeah i couldn't possibly agree with you more Let's talk about the Opens for a minute. I think it's important for listeners to understand that the uh, of the first 29 Opens, as it were, all were won by Scotsmen from 1860 to 1889. John Ball, of course, famously won as the first man from England in 1890 as an amateur. And 
perhaps perhaps not coincidentally and maybe completely consistent with all of your research this set off a torrent of victories by the southerners in the next decade between 1890 and 1900 english players took the claret jug in all but two of the tournaments of course jh taylor harold hilton harry varden mainly but it's also notable when you look at the context for all of those tournaments over let's say 11 years how often one of them also came in second place but mm -hmm. it, it's just interesting to see the dramatic flip in the 1890s of the predominance of english golfers against the world and probably not coincidentally a result of the english golf boom is that is that a fair link to yes. make well I guess the, the key figures who were successful in the Open champ, Championship in that period, of course, Ball and Hilton being the, the two amateurs who were successful. And, of course, Ball winning the amateur and the Open in, in the same year in 1890 was a, a, a very important moment. Yeah. The, he was then the first English golfer to, non-Scott, in fact, to, to win the Open mm -hmm, Championship. Mm -hmm. The three big, the three key big figures in, in golf who won six, five, and five Open Championships between 1893 and 1914 were Varden, Taylor, and Braid. Now, Braid, of course, was a Scot, um, and he won five. Um, but, of course, he was based in England by that time. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. He was somewhat anglicised. Varden was from Jersey, an island, a crown dependency off offshore. Right, but right. But but probably could still be counted as England. Again, he was based at a at an English club during this period. So although they they may not strictly have been English, um, mm -hmm. they're 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 they were based there. So you could say that that, that uh, there was a large the, the majority of the the wins at that time. Even Sandy Herd, who was one of the other another Scot who won, but he was based in England at that time. Mm -hmm. So I think what's what's behind this was the fact that golf clubs in England were booming. There was a lot of golf going on. There was a lot of members and Scots who, or others who had become good at the game were more likely to be well-paid working as a professional at an English club. So Braid was at Walton Heath when it, when it began. He was the first professional there and he remained there until his death in the 1950s. J.H. Taylor was Royal Mid, sorry, and, and Varden was at Ganton for a period of time mm -hmm, as well. So, um, so you, I think there's a sort of, it, it's quite hard to know if there's a chicken and egg effect here that um, golf became popular because people wanted to play it, but also the media attention of the great championships brought to people's attention that golf was an interesting game to play. And you'll have, you probably know my good friend Stephen Proctor, who mm -hmm. is written the long golden afternoon and uh, the two of us uh, were writing our books at the same time about the same period and we were in good contact with it throughout the period but we've written our books from slightly different angles and I think mm -hmm. the interaction between the two gives you the answer so if you were to buy both books you'd see the perspective from the champions and the championships and how that attracted people to golf while from my perspective, the other angle is that golf is intrinsically such a fun game to play that it's not surprising so many people were drawn to it when the clubs began to form. Yeah. Stephen's been very kind. He's a listener to the podcast, so he'll hear this, I'm sure. So what's next for you, Michael? Do you have uh, something coming up next? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm writing two books at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, which are not... Uh, the, they won't be out in a hurry. They're 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 uh, slightly longer term projects. So the first one is um, with a small team. I'm heading up a small editorial team to write a book on the history of the Senior Golfer Society, mm. which is the British Senior Golfers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You probably know the Americans uh, formed their own U.S. Senior Golfing Association in. Um, well, I think their first event was in something like 1905 and they formally constituted in around about 1918 or something of that, that order. And then the Canadians joined in too and they had annual matches between Canada and America at senior level, over 55s. 
And then uh, the British came along in the 1920s. So 1926 was when the Senior Golfer Society was formed. So we're putting together a centenary book to describe the society's So that's one. And uh, recently I've just been commissioned to write the history of a famous um, Lynx-based golf club in England called Hunstanton. Oh, yes. On North Norfolk coast. So... um, that's uh, a, a second project which I'm just getting underway. So these these will take over the next couple of years or so of yeah. my time. I love it. Could you tell uh, listeners how they can obtain a copy of your book and uh, follow you on social media? Certainly. Um, so on social media, if you're still on Twitter, then I'm at Golf History Mike is my uh, is my handle. But if you want to purchase a copy of my book, which I'd be delighted if you did so. Um, then you have to contact contact me initially by by email. That's the simplest way to deal with it. Uh, my email address is mike.morrison57 at outlook.com. Wonderful. The book costs um, the book itself costs twenty five pounds. Um, if you lived in the UK, then there's a further five pounds for postage and packing. Unfortunately, to to post it to America, there's substantial additional costs and it would cost i think the delivered cost comes to about 55 pound in in the u.s and mm-hmm. north america well worth it at 25 pounds it's such a bargain that is very very reasonable thank you i i mean and again i didn't wish to overprice it or make it a book that would be uh, expensive because i want to distribute it as widely as possible yeah Well, I'm so grateful to you and for your time today, and I'm sure someday we'll get a chance to say hello in person. That would be great. I'd look forward to that, Robert. Thank you. Thank you.